1: Hello and welcome to Oh God, What Now? I'm Jacob Jarvis, enjoying hosting the show until Penny Mordant makes me join the army. On today's edition, the Commons returns at full speed with a school concrete crisis making Sunak wish he'd never come back from California. And we've had not one, but two reshuffles with the PM tweaking his top team and Keir Starmer doing the same. Plus, what do young people need? No, it's not as obvious as better homes and job opportunities. According to the AI conservative idea generator this week, it's national service. We discuss the latest wartime nostalgia headline grabber from the Tories. Before we begin, a quick reminder. Through the miracle of modern technology, as well as listening to us, you can now also watch the show on YouTube. Just go to youtube.com forward slash oh god what now. And if you can't remember that, there's a link in the show notes too. Now let's meet the panel. Ros Taylor needs no introduction, but she's an Oh God, What Now mainstay, bunker podcast regular, freelance editor and a keen hiker. Hello, Ros. How are you?
2: Hello, Char. I think, uh, you know, the spirit is willing that the flesh is weak when it comes to the hiking, <laughs> but uh, thank you. Nonetheless, I like don't, to be think
1: of thought of as such. Don't underestimate yourself. <laughs> uh, Ros, Jeremy Hunt has told us to brace for an inflation blip, a little blip, but he's insisted the plan to get it down is still working. Is he just setting himself up for more failure here when it inevitably doesn't work?
2: Well, it's very hard to say exactly what's going to happen with inflation. Uh, The Bank of England says it's going to fall to 5% by December, but the Bank of England has been wrong consistently a lot lately. And there is still a stubborn problem with it not going down as fast as the government wants it to. And basically, Hunt is worried that fuel prices in particular will mean that in September it goes up again. And then there's other stuff going on as well. Things like wages are going up. It's great for people, but it's not going to help inflation. Grain prices are still up due to the Ukraine war and lots of wrangling over what's happening with the Black Sea deal for the Ukrainian wheat. There may be a cold winter, which may well put energy prices up again. So it's really, in in many ways, not in his control. And another worrying aspect is that there's some research in the US now that suggests that the interest rate rises there are leading to higher rents, which of course is pushing up inflation because buy-to-let landlords are passing on their extra costs to uh, their tenants. And it may well be that that is happening here too. So there's a lot of factors and I wouldn't be very confident if I was Jeremy Hunt.
1: Is Jeremy Hunt being kind of swept up in a sort of boosterish ish groupthink, do you think, by the Conservatives? I mean, he just seems to me he was meant to come in and be really sensible and deliver hard and horrible news and then he's slowly come around to being really positive. Are they missing that kind of that void of a cheerleader that Boris Johnson has left and Jeremy Hunt's maybe slightly morphing himself very, you know, not quite all the way, but a little bit into that, that role?
2: Well, I mean, he will be aware as much as Sunak is of the pledges that Sunak made for the end of the year. And one of those is inflation. Another, of course, is small boats. Another problem which they are very much not on top of with record numbers landing over the weekend. So, you know, what else is there to do at this stage of this dying government, really, rather than talk yourself up as much as you can uh, and, and live in your own uh, happier universe where things are indeed going to get much better before the next election? <laughs>
1: Zoe Grunewald is a policy and politics correspondent at the New Statesman. New job title. Congratulations, Zoe. Thank you. Uh, Also a fluffy cat owner and, most importantly, our friend. Hello, Zoe. Hello. So former PM and Home Secretary, Theresa May, has said in her memoir, which I'm sure nobody can wait to read, that she regrets using the phrase hostile environment. She writes, in retrospect, it was not a good term to use. Is this jarringly late, seeing as so many people, no one else really needed retrospect, did they? So many people at the time told her. It wasn't a good phrase to use.
3: I think for us, yes. But I think a lot of her conservative colleagues and specifically her um, successors in the Home Office, like Suella Braverman, would probably think she hadn't gone far enough there. Um, but yes, Theresa May seems to be having a bit of a reckoning um, with herself and with her uh, work as both Prime Minister and Home Secretary. And that's what she talks about a lot in her new book, um, which I haven't read, but I've read lots of reviews of, including one by our political editor at the New Statesman, Andrew Marr. And one of the things he says that she does in this book is she apologises a lot for a lot of things. So she apologises not only for using the term hostile environment when she was in the home office, um, which she says she believes contributed to the Windrush scandal, but also for her believing the smears about Liverpool fans after Hillsborough and for failing to visit the Grenfell families in the immediate aftermath of the fire um, and a few other things as well. And I think it's really interesting because we have seen since May left government, she's sort of softened and she actually has become one of the most vocal critics of some of the government's immigration policies. So she's one of the most um, ardent supporters of more protections for victims of modern slavery. And generally, I think she's actually doing herself quite a few favours on the backbenches. She seems to be one of the more compassionate conservatives. And when you compare her to... Um, the current sort of policy direction of the government, she comes across looking very moderate. And uh, yeah, well, I mean, Andrew Marr's review of her book was pretty glowing, to be honest. So maybe maybe we should read her, I don't know.
1: Should should we be cautious about letting her do this kind of rebranding of herself, though? I mean, I just don't personally know, and maybe this is me being a bit bitter and grizzled here, but know whether she really deserves that chance. It's fair enough to say she's sorry, and that's fine, and welcomes but I don't know if it actually really should change our position, particularly looking at her historically mm-hmm. as a figure in politics or, or going forward. I mean, what do you, do
3: no, you think? No, I, I agree. I think, you know, it's it's great to see a politician looking back, admitting some of their mistakes and apologising. And that's something we've had a real dearth of when you look at Johnson and Truss, um, for example. So she represents a, a, a kind of humility that is missing from, I think, a lot of political leaders. But you're right, she still has a lot of things to answer for and she's still on the Conservative benches. So how sorry are you, I guess, is the question. Or whether you're right, she's just trying to, you know rewrite her reputation a little bit. You
1: could go to one of her really expensive after-dinner talks at some point, I'm sure. Oh, yeah, you can definitely afford
3: that. (laughs) I understand she gets quite an
2: easy ride, relatively speaking, in Roy Stewart's new book as well, which is quite excoriating, apparently, about almost everyone in the Conservative (laughs) (laughs) administration since he joined it. But um, she gave him, you know, a couple of decent jobs that he did reasonably well in, so perhaps I shouldn't plug um, the um, people who run uh, rival podcasts.
1: Don't read either of those books, just listen to our podcast. (laughs) is what I'll say there. The Commons has returned after recess and Rishi Sunak will be desperately wishing he was back watching Taylor Swift or sipping a mocktail in sunny California. A concrete crisis has seen schools shut across the country and the Prime Minister has been accused of being too tight to fund repairs back when he was Chancellor. Meanwhile, he's rejigged his top team in a mini reshuffle, a little cabinet tinker, if you will. And Keir Starmer has done the same, but with a bit more gusto. Roz, let's start with the concrete fiasco. It's a little on the nose, isn't it, that schools in England are literally falling apart. But is it in any way a surprise or is it just it's quite indicative, it feels to me, of Sunak's particular brand of mismanagement?
2: Well, it wasn't a surprise to councils who warned about it and it wasn't a surprise to the National Audit Office who warned about it quite recently. Uh, But it does seem to have come as a a surprise nonetheless to uh, the press and the government. Uh, Is it his particular style of mismanagement? Well, it's not so much mismanagement as the entire Conservative approach because this dates back much further. It goes back to the decision that Michael Gove made in 2010 when the coalition came in to drop the school's rebuilding programme that Labour had begun. Now, that was a decision that was clearly linked to austerity. It was something that could fall by the wayside under the financial pressure that the government said it was under uh, at the time. And it's part of a, you know, that that pattern of cutting corners to save money. It's yeah, I think I'm I'm just super incredibly grateful today that my kids are able to go back this week. And the fact that I'm incredibly grateful that my kids can go back to school this week without them returning to home learning or being shoved in a shipping container or whatever whatever else emergency measure is being made is, as you say, testament to the state this country is in. And I was particularly struck when I was uh, doing a bit of extra research today looking at a new sports centre that Winchester College, which is uh, uh, Rishi Sunak's alma mater, made a major new sports centre, uh, begun during lockdown. Uh, it's nearly finished now. The roofs are on. There's uh, new squash and five courts, and those squash and five courts have underfloor heating. It's, you know, cost uh, millions and millions of pounds and all funded thanks to tax-free donations <laughs> uh, to the charity that is with Winchester College. So, yeah. I'm angry. <laughs> yeah. I mean,
1: I, I don't think I knew what squash was when I was at school, but I suppose I, I grew up under Labour governments and my school was nicknamed Shitty City. And it kind of vaguely did me all right, but there was never any consideration that it was genuinely dangerous to my safety. I mean, maybe there are a few bullies who are a little bit of a danger to my safety, but the physical structure of the school. Itself And was I, never I a can risk. assure
2: you that squash is a very sweaty sport yeah. <laughs> in which you definitely do not need underfloor heating in order to practice.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so Education Secretary Gillian Keegan has also looked to kind of dodge blame for for everything. And after an interview of ITV, while still mic'd up, which barely, I would say, is kind of hot mic. It was just mic'd up. She's barely even finished the interview when she said it. She goes, does anyone ever say, you know what, you've done a fucking good job because everyone else has sat on their asses and done nothing? No signs of that, no. She's just, I mean, it, I think it's really lazy to compare everything to the thick of it, but the thick of it wouldn't do that. The thick of it would have been at least more convoluted and it would have needed for the drama there to have been a bit of pause where then they went, oh, fuck, it was hot mic. Whereas this was just... So quick turnaround. It was ridiculous. I mean, but on what she was saying, do any of their excuses whatsoever wash? You know, Sunak has spoken of numbers of rebuilds and refurbs, but nothing seems to add up as far as I can see.
2: Mm. I mean, this was an off-mic moment in a league with Gordon Brown and his bigoted bigoted mm. woman. Yeah. Um, we know what happened after that. And John Major and his uh, bastards over Euroscepticism. And yeah, this one is going to go down in the... Uh, probably it will be played back many, many, many times.
1: Every single person asking Rishi Sunak, do you think Gillian Keegan is doing a fucking good <laughs> job? He's going to have a lot of fun at Constantly. PMQs this yeah. week,
2: yeah. Um, do, do any of their excuses wash? No, I mean, he'll argue that COVID has emptied the coffers and that we, that's why we haven't been able to repair schools. But as I mentioned earlier, the National Audit Office had warned that this was an urgent problem and he was told that he, loads of schools needed to be repaired and he only actually funded a quarter of the schools that needed repairs. It is a long pattern of under- Investment in buildings because it's an easy thing to let go when you when you're under financial pressure or you want to cut taxes or you know you're you're, you're instituting an austerity policy because people don't notice it happening until the roof starts falling in yeah. and it's it's it, it's something that just should happen in the background all the time automatically and there shouldn't even be a question that when a school is uh, has. This this particular kind of dangerous, serrated concrete, or when a school has structural problems, that it is immediately repaired. It's a school, not a bloody church, for God's sake. I mean, we have charities that deal with churches that are falling down. Mm. This is a public institution where we all send our kids. It is a public responsibility to ensure that they're not a, that they're not a danger, and yet it has yeah been consistently cut back on.
1: I mean, also just the, on the political angle of them not seeming to see that if a kid gets injured in one of these schools and then it is determined that it's because the government was being mm. too tight, because the roof has fell in on a child. I remember mm. many years ago when I worked for a newspaper being sent out to a school where a roof had fell in on a kid. And it was it was massive. So many mm. people focused on it. And from a purely cynical level, away from the fact that, obviously, that's fucking scary, horrible for the family, horrible for the child, from them, from a political angle, it's like, do you really want to get yourself in the position where you could have maimed children through your just complete negligence to schools. It just seems to me, there's no thought to it. It's
2: like running down the NHS. People are dying and have died in their tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, because of the NHS's failures. But those people aren't really, you know, if a school if a child fell died because the roof fell in, you would at least hear about it. People die in the NHS all the time, and you don't Mm. hear about it because of what the government has done.
1: Mm. So with this Gillian Keegan comment. Does it feel completely like a gaffe to you? Because it, maybe I'm giving her way too much benefit of the doubt and way too much, I'm putting too much thought into it because I'm imagining myself as an MP and thinking how paranoid I would be constantly. Is there any way that it could be contrived in some way? because you know, mm. It just seems it's so rookie.
3: Yes, it is really rookie because as you say, and anyone can watch the clip, it's almost... Five seconds after the interview ends, she's still mic'd up and she's talking directly to the interviewer. You can be cynical about it. And there are there are two potential things, I think. The first is that she's trying to shift blame onto previous education secretaries and possibly Sunek as well. So when she talks about people sitting on their arse or whatever the comment was. Having that caught on microphone and having it broadcast will get people talking about, well, who does she mean? You know, is she talking about the previous education secretary? Is she talking about the prime minister? Is she talking about the former chancellor? You know, all these all these questions. The other is that it moves the news agenda on. Um, On the radio this morning, a former government official basically uh, said in an interview that uh, Sunak had refused this funding that was needed to basically rebuild and and mend schools back in 2021. Um, And obviously that puts Sunak very much in the shit, to be frank. So um, it's possible, you could think, if you're being cynical, that she was trying to move the, the agenda on from that particular comment. But, I mean, I think it doesn't reflect well on her what was said. People will listen to that and think, you want us to pat you on the back for doing a good job when ceilings could be crumbling on our children's head? No, and I think if it was deliberate, it would be a bit more nuanced than that. I think what it was, and, and Ros, we were talking about this earlier, you were saying she's tired, she's probably feeling really annoyed. You know, she's not been Education Secretary for that long and there have been multiple Education Secretaries in the last year alone. Um, And probably, yeah, feeling a bit like, why is this all my fault? And I don't think you really can get away with that when you're Education Secretary. I don't think people will have much sympathy for it, but I think she just had a very bad lapse of judgment.
1: Politically, looking at Sunak here, you mentioned it throws him in the shit completely and Julian Keegan maybe has been a bit of a, a meat shield there to some extent does it feel like he's hit a, a low here though does it really can it hurt him that much more or is he sort of bottomed out on how popular he is or is there has he not quite got there yet
3: it just feels like it gets worse and worse for the conservatives and as you were saying before you know there's really no more visceral representation than the state that the conservatives have left the public services in so you know you you wonder how it could get worse for sunak and unless there was an actual disaster and it happened, then potentially not. But I just think we're going to see this story rumble on and on. We still don't know the full extent of how many schools are affected. There's also um, evidence that hospitals are affected. Other public buildings have this aerated concrete. So this story is going to rumble on and on. And when it's finally revealed just how many buildings are in trouble, just how many times the government missed an opportunity to pump money in and to sort this problem out, it's going to get worse and worse for Sunak. And I think that he's basically gifted a new attack line to Labour, which is this man would have let ceilings fall on your children's head.
1: Roz, we're going to talk about reshuffles in a moment. But does this crisis kind of also sum up why there's such an issue with the amount of cabinet movement there has been? Because you say this has been a sort of slow creep of them grinding stuff down. And one part of that is they can shift responsibility onto more and more people behind them. But another thing is they seem to kind of just lose track of jobs they were doing and how that might affect them in the future. Sunak really here maybe has been hamstrung by a decision he himself made while doing another job not not very long ago.
2: Yeah, I. it's just very difficult when you're constantly changing jobs to actually get on top of your brief and understand it you know, if, if somebody in the public sector or in the corporate world changed jobs as often as the cabinet do, it would just be completely unsustainable. And yet they're supposed to just slot into these jobs immediately and, and be on top of their, of their brief. And that makes it impossible for them to argue for the priorities that their department has because they haven't got time to work out what those priorities are. In addition, because of the political uncertainty and the kind of mad political world that we've been living in for the last couple of years, they're constantly jostling for preferred. They've constantly got an eye to their personal advancement, where they are in the pecking order, uh, who they're backing next, who's in, who's out. And that's going to take up their time uh, when they should be actually running a department. So the pressure of time and, and the pressure is just too great for them to be able to do their jobs properly.
1: Well, we're going on to people who can't do their, their jobs properly, let's talk about those changes. So. There's that urban legend that goes in a major city, you're never more than six feet away from a rat. And if you're Grant Shapps, you're never more than five minutes away from a new ministerial role, it would appear. A senior Tory reportedly said his appointment is like letting a child into the nuclear bunker and encouraging him to play. Are you in equal measure sad to see Wallace go and baffled to see Shapps put into the role of Defence Secretary?
2: Well, I'm not going to bat for Wallace. I don't think he was half as wonderful as people no. seem to have said he was. He was just halfway competent, which is yeah. quite rare in he's this government. He's more
1: wonderful than yeah. everyone else <laughs> Yeah. At the moment. I mean, he's, I was not
2: surprised, though, to see Shaps put there, because he's uh, a great loyalist and Sunak values that. He's a very interesting character. Grant Shapps. Not necessarily in a good way, not necessarily a particularly (laughs) bad way. He's a bit of a wide boy, basically. Uh, He's not from the kind of elite background that many in the cabinet are. He has a business and finance degree from Manchester Metropolitan University, which is is, uh, not not especially elite. And he has no real ties to the defence establishment, which oddly enough may well be an advantage to him as far as Sunak Mm -hmm. is concerned. And there is pressure on the Ministry of Defence at the moment to use its estates to house migrants and Wallace resisted that pressure, it remains to be seen whether Shapps will resist it. So that could also be very useful.
1: Zoe, I kind of lost track a little bit Who who's in the cabinet after that mega resignation day under Boris Johnson. Now, who else has moved around, and are they any good? Claire Coutinho, for example. Is, yes,
3: so she's worth attention. So Claire Coutinho replaced Grant Shapps's role as Environment and Energy Sec. So Coutinho is really interesting. So she is a 2019 intake. She's the first of the 2019 intake to enter the cabinet, um, and she used to be a Treasury spad as well. And what is interesting about Katino is that she is also a one-nation conservative, but she's a sunak loyalist. Um, and the two don't necessarily not go hand in hand. But it's interesting that she's been put in this role because we've seen Sunak backtrack quite a bit recently on his green policies. Katino, when she was elected into government, her maiden speech was all about the environment and renewables, and she described her East Surrey constituency as the lungs of London. But of course, having been a Treasury spad, she's also going to be Treasury-minded, and she's going to be thinking a lot about money, which is very important to the Conservatives, of course. So this is an interesting role for her, because how will she tread that very strange line that Sunak has created of going along with net zero, but being slightly sceptical of green policies? whilst maintaining the um, economic cost and risks of certain policies. She'll have to do that. So that's a really complicated break. It seems like
1: a weird job to give to a mate, basically. Mm. I'd be quite pissed off if my mate gave me that job, which was essentially putting me in a really annoying tightrope walk.
3: It's almost as if he's been like, I have a lot of faith in you, and you're going to prove yourself in this very difficult role. And people are already saying, could she be the next leader of the Conservative Party? Because she's sort of been propelled quite quickly to this position. So um, she's definitely one to watch. Um, Grant Shops will just carry on being Grant Shops in defence. And apart from that, it was a pretty lackluster reshuffle, really.
1: Well, with that, why why hasn't he been, been bolder? I don't really kind of understand. It's been talked about doing a reshuffle for ages. Mm. He's then been kind of forced into it a little bit by Wallace going... Why not just do the out-and-out out reshuffle now?
3: Mm, so I think, well, A, he was sort of, his hand was forced a little bit by uh, Ben Wallace's resignation. But I think what we're seeing here is a Prime Minister who is deathly afraid of his party. His hand
1: is always forced, it seems to me. And I kind of think, well, you are Prime Minister and politics happens. Mm-hmm. Surely you're guessing that stuff will yeah. Bad things will happen that you have to deal with.
3: Also, he's got so many people within his party and outside of it saying, What's your vision, Sunak? What is your vision for the future? Not just for the next year, but for the general election and onwards. What is what are you offering? And this could have been a great opportunity for him to completely shake things up, rejuvenate this this stale conservatism. But he's so afraid, I think, of provoking more conservative psychodrama. People might say he's being cautious or he's sticking with what works, and he'll probably argue that there's no point Um, switching things up too much when there's so many serious issues at hand that won't be fixed by just moving people in and out of government. And, you know, you can see that there's an appetite from the public for stability to have those same faces in. We saw so much churn. But I think people are now looking at Sunak and thinking, does this man have any vision? And I think the fact that he's Refused to do a, a proper reshuffle when he had the opportunity to is now making people think, well, he's too weak to have a vision. He's just. You it know. seems
1: like his vision is if it's broken, don't fix it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Which yeah. seems really, really. Because you might break
3: it. Even more, more. yeah, Yeah,
1: exactly. Uh, What about the Labour side then? What were the big surprises there?
3: So this was a much more assertive reshuffle from Starmer. So he's very much trying to get his influence and this Blairite influence over the party and purge a little bit more of the soft left. So I think there were two major surprises. Um, The first was the promotion of Angela Rayner. So there was lots of briefing coming out prior to this reshuffle that Rayner might be in trouble. And the reason for this is because Rayner is a a big face on the soft left. She was an ally of Corbyn. She worked closely with Corbyn. And there's always been reports that there's been a bit of tension between uh, Starmer and Rayner. But he's kept her in. And not only that, he's now made her his official shadow deputy prime minister. And he's given her the levelling up brief. So. That's a that's a that's a big brief. It's very important to Labour. Red wall connections are very important to them. So he's given her a, 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 a quite a prominent role. But of course, having given her that, he's got rid of Lisa Nandy and he sent Lisa Nandy to um, international development. There were reports that there were some tensions with Lisa Nandy in the cabinet that um some maybe felt she was disloyal. Um and Lisa Nandy, to all credit to her, she's now gone to this new brief and accepted it and you know, still wants to work as part of a team. So it's all A lot of political wrangling, basically, and it's traditional Labour factionalism. And what we've seen here is Starmer really consolidating his influence over the party and the Blairite influence over the party. So you see people reintroduced, like um, Pat McFadden, he's going to be a campaign coordinator. We've got Liz Kendall back in as well. These are all quite strong Blairite figures. But we're definitely seeing that consolidation of Starmerism, what Starmer wants going forward to the next election, and that influence from Tony Blair still very much present.
1: Ros, what do you think Starmer wants from this? Is it about that pushing the Blairite vibes on it? Or is it a bit of a, a constant battle of optics at this point that he's seen Sunak be timid and shambolic, so he wants to look bold and decisive. So he's thought, fuck it, I'll, I'll really shake things up because... He won't, and I can show that I can.
2: I think it's less optics than wanting to get a new shadow cabinet in place well ahead of the next election. I mean, obviously, we don't know exactly when it's going to be. Um, Alexandra Andreo, who I was talking to on start, Bunker Start your week this morning, thinks it's going to be the spring. Um, I would love to see it in the spring, but I fear it may not be until later in the year. And I think the latest possible it can be, its uh, date can be, is the beginning of 2025, which seems an age away. But what this means is that the whole shadow cabinet has the time to bed. In, whereas the contrast with Sunak is that he's you know done a mini reshuffle, but he's obviously planning to do another reshuffle again closer to the election. That means that whoever, for example, might be Home Secretary instead of Suela Braverman, will be landed with uh, that extremely difficult brief and not really be on top of it. So that's an advantage. Um, there are some other really, um, really quite good exciting appointments here as well. I mean, Shabana Mahmood to justice is very interesting. Hillary Benn, it's really nice to see Hillary Benn back. I have so much time for that guy. I
1: really like Hillary Benn. Whenever yeah. I would like have to try and speak to a politician at any point, he was always very, very nice.
2: He's great. And he did a great job as chair of the Brexit Select Committee during some of the most difficult periods for Parliament ever almost. And so he's gone to Northern Ireland, which is a very good brief for him because, of course, so much of Northern Ireland and all of it, clearly, I mean, the whole place is in stasis at the moment, which is appalling. But so much of it is to do with the Good Friday agreement and the you know, the, uh, the ramifications of Brexit for that. So I think he'll be really good there.
1: Could Starmer be accused a little bit here? Though? I mean, with we've, we've out to me, it looks like it's a bit of jobs for his mates because he desperately wants friends around him. Is Starmer really just doing a bit of a, a similar thing? Does this feel totally like it's weighed upon talent or is a little bit of it around a an idea and a vision, this kind of blary feeling around it?
2: It consolidates his command of the party. It's clear that he doesn't need... You know, uh, nearly as many people as you were saying sorry from the soft left as he did and he could pick the people who he thinks will be really good at the job and it was interesting today I mean the only kind of dissent that we had was from Rosanna Alin khan mm. the um, uh, doctor from Tooting I think who was in mental uh, had the mental health brief and she was a bit fed up that the mental health specifically brief has been apparently abolished and it's not going to be you know, much of a post in a new Labour government but you know she didn't she 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 wrote in a letter and she was always going to make a bit of a fuss because she doesn't hesitate to speak her mind yeah. it's just the way Rosetta Ali is as well. <laughs> yeah but she didn't you know it hasn't been a massive thing you, you've seen Lisa Nandy fall in despite her emotion he really can do pretty much what mm-hmm. he wants now and he has taken advantage of that and it puts him in a in a strong position
1: next up time to choose our hero and villain of the week Roz, who's been your your hero and who's been your villain this week then
2: well my hero or heroes are UK bees and wasps and bear with me because I know Zoe is not the biggest fan of wasps it's a really tough sell for wasps I think (laughs) but there is unfortunately an alien predator moving into the country from, I'm sorry to say, Europe, Um, the Asian hornet, which is... Coming over
1: here and stealing our hives. (laughs) Well, yeah,
2: it's coming over. It's starting to to build nests in various counties in the south of England. And it, it does terrible things to bees and wasps. There's a terrifying... Video on the BBC website which shows an Asian hornet literally tearing apart a wasp, and you have to feel some compassion for the wasp because (laughs) it had no chance. And uh, you know, in places where the Asian hornet has moved in, it is really, it, it does. Terrible things to do. Bees and, you know, we need bees and wasps. and uh, uh, Yes, yeah, so, so my hero is, is those bees and wasps. Fight back is what I say against this predator. So
1: is the, is the Asian hornet the villain or have you got an extra villain too?
2: Oh, I've got an extra villain. I'm really down on Michael Gove this week. Really down okay. on Michael Gove. I'm usually down on Michael Gove. Don't like him. But particularly this week, you know, the the fact that he abandoned the school rebuilding program in 2010, massively bad judgment. It's the fact that he's that great survivor with Michael Gove. It's like mm. repeatedly people bring him back into the fold and praise what a sensible, pragmatic, clever guy he is. And he has really achieved very little as a, as a politician, as a minister. And I really very much hope that when this government is voted out next year, as we can only hope it will be, that Michael Gove goes away and thinks about what he has done and does not write a book (laughs) exonerating himself and praising his own record in government because he has no positive record uh, You've
1: got to put a pound in the Labour government jar now. Don't drink (sighs) it, Zoe, your hero and villain.
3: OK, so my I really struggled for a hero this week because the news was just terrible. But um, I think our heroes have to be teachers because they are being forced to work under appalling conditions, having consistently been stamped on by this government. So there's never enough supplies in schools. Now the buildings are falling down. They had to wrangle with the education secretary for a reasonable pay rise. When you speak to any teacher and they'll tell you they're overworked, exhausted um, and really struggling. So my heart is going out to teachers this week, especially with having to deal with the number of concerned parents that they'll be getting on the first day back of term. It seems
1: to me when you speak to any teacher as well, it's just they're they're probably thinking about moving abroad. Oh, yeah. Some you know mates are just off elsewhere. Or
3: they quit the scheme. I've had a number of friends who did the Teach First scheme and they quit because they just would driven mad by how appalling the conditions were and how little they were getting paid. And then my villain of the week is Gavin Williamson because he's just a very unpleasant man. So today, a parliamentary inquiry found that he had indeed, as we all knew, bullied Wendy Morton, the former chief whip, in text, so remember this was what Gavin Williamson was forced to resign over. He complained to Wendy Morton that MPs who were not favoured by the then Prime Minister Mistrust, Liz Trust, sorry, were being excluded from the ceremony at Westminster Abbey for the Queen's death. Um, In one text, he t- told uh, Wendy Morton that there is a price for everything, and that excluding MPs was very stupid. Also saying, also don't forget, I know how this works, so don't piss me about. Um he was demanding a ticket to the Queen's funeral. I mean, it's yeah. just a sort of level of entitlement. Yeah, not Williamson
1: have a, a tarantula too? Yes. Yeah, fuck him. He has a
3: spreadsheet and a tarantula. <laughs> too weird. And it is, a ticket yeah. to the Queen's funeral. Yeah, it's yeah. Ter-
1: terrifying there. Right, I, I've got to pick. I'm going to go teachers there. And I'm going to go Gove for villain, actually, because I think Williamson is an accepted villain. He's always a basically, villain, Basically, yeah. whereas Gove, people seem to treat him like he's a bit of a a fun-time guy, which he shouldn't get treated like. Mm. There are a lot of things that young people want right now, but the Tories aren't interested in that. They're focused on what they need. No, that's not cheaper housing or better jobs, but good old-fashioned discipline from National Service, according to ex-magician's assistant, former Splash contestant and once Navy reservist, leader of the House of Commons Penny Mordant. Ros, the headlines all said National Service. But strictly speaking, that's just not what this is, is it? What is she? What's she talking about? No,
2: it's it's not national service in the sense that we understood it. I mean, yeah. it was brought in in nineteen forty nine. National service for all men, only men, and it lasted eighteen months. And you basically had to join one of the forces, one of the three forces, and serve serve there, unless I think you were a conscientious objector, in which case you could opt out and do something peaceful instead. So this is a different thing that they're actually suggesting, though they'd like to call it national service because for the nostalgia value, um, it's, it would be it's a voluntary see, uh, scheme essentially. So you would be enrolled in it is the proposal, uh, but you could opt out a bit like with pensions at the moment. It's not auto enrollment but you can say no if you want to, and it and would, like with
1: organs as well.
2: Yeah, it's a it's a nudge thing. Um, it's a, It would be a mix of military and civic service. So you will get to choose whether you wanted to do boot camp or whether you wanted to work in a hospital or care home or kids or, you know, environmental projects, that kind of things. And it wouldn't be 18 months. It would probably be about six.
1: So the, the suggestion came largely from the the onward think tank and its head honcho Sebastian, better look next time you try to become a Tory MP, Payne <laughs> wrote that young people are unhappy, unskilled. That was quite snipey of me, wasn't it? But uh, <laughs> unhappy, unskilled and unmoored. Was there a point in what you were saying, though? You know, do, you, do you agree in to some extent?
2: Yeah, I mean, there's an element of truth to it. As a 48-year-old, I hesitate to pronounce on the condition of young people now. It would be quite patronising for me to do so, and it does come across that way. But we do know that mental health problems among young people are widespread, and I see that among you know, the, uh, my kids' generation, um, partly through... NHS failures and the collapse of the mental health services, partly I think the effect of lockdowns, partly the effect of social media that that has on some people, partly academic pressures, all these kind of perfect storm of things. And these, are, of course, are all things that, go- that the government could have chosen to prioritise in the past and did not. So, yeah. uh, But let's be clear, though, that virtually every generation is seen as problematic by its elders. This is a recurring pattern in politics. So you have to ask, what are the particular problems of this one? And would they be fixed by some form of national service. Now, I'm actually quite in favour, which might surprise some people, of an ever-voluntary scheme like this. I think it has definitely has things to recommend it. That said, it won't happen because, let's face it, we live in a country where, as we've just discussed, the ceilings are falling in and we can't do the simplest thing. So the chances of us being able to uh, arrange a national service for half a million young people every year are very small, um, certainly at the moment. But it would be a nice to have.
1: Yeah, It feels to me the only way to actually frame this would be that you, you genuinely believe it is a good thing for the young people involved and not a sort of solving the problem of young people yeah. for the rest of society, and yeah. making that work. And I don't believe this government, I've never really got the, you know, I'm, I'm 30, I'm not sort of as young as it would be to be on this scheme. But I've never got the feeling that they've cared about me yeah. at any point. And
2: that's, that's a really important point, actually. I think it's really important to give young people something that is not just pass these exams or your future is screwed. Yeah. And that's basically what you do at the moment. And that would be a good thing.
1: Yeah, you know, I took a year out after college and I worked at a, let's leave it unnamed, but famously messy, quite cheap, very big clove retailer. For a little while, so guess who that that was. Uh, but I did that for a, for a year, sort of part time, just because I purely didn't feel quite ready to go to to university at that point. And mm-hmm. it would have been quite nice to have maybe done something. You know, I made friends there. I feel like I developed skills from it, but I didn't massively enjoy it at any point. Let's say to be mm-hmm. honest, and it would have been quite nice to have had something on the table that would have been more fun or better suited to me and more and more options there. Mm-hmm. Zoe, as as Roz says. It, this doesn't really just seem like it's going to to happen, but but is it remotely viable, or is it just a headline grabber?
3: The Onward think tank produces quite a lot of these kind of reports, and they're very well researched, and they often do grab a lot of headlines because they sort of represent the the centre right. Um, so they tend to get backing from conservative MPs. They actually have identified a lot of problems. Young people are unhappy and they are unskilled and they are unmoored. Um, But it's the solutions they posit tend to be rooted in conservative ideology. And as we're saying, this isn't a straightforward national service, as many of us know that. That is definitely... A attention grabbing headline. Actually, it's a bit more nuanced than that. It's a you know volunteering and just basically uh, getting young people to work for their communities, work um, to get a, a sense of work and a sense of responsibility. Those things you, you think are... are fairly reasonable I, think I
1: feel like if you framed it in that reasonable way though i can see so you know penny mordaunt has got a big headline in the telegraph from talking about this but if you'd framed it in that reasonable way you've just described it and you're a labor mp who said it mm. it would be labor mp comes up with woke scheme to give kids a jolly mm. for a year oh
3: yeah that taxpayers have to for, like, yeah, the bill for yeah. jollies yeah absolutely so i think there is definitely a sense of appealing to those Conservative voters who feel that young people have lost a sense of patriotism and tradition, and you know respect for their community, respect for their elders, Um, is this sort of scheme viable? Probably not. Um, They estimate it would cost up to 1.3 billion. Um, So, I mean, I I do think they this report has identified a lot of issues. You know, problems with um, young people's mental health, young people's connection to the community, but the solutions it posits, the way it presents them, you know. It's, it's not necessarily going to get young people on board. And as you say, there are so many other reasons why young people are struggling. So I think if you want to make young people feel like they have a stake in society, the first thing they, you need to do is sort out things like housing, jobs, wage growth things like that, um, skills, apprenticeships, etc. cetera. They, those are all the things that make young people feel inspired and like they want to contribute.
1: The solution in front of me seems obvious, though, a whole big society thing, that you get the older kids to fix the roofs for the young kids and just do it like that. <laughs> yeah. It can be secular. That can save us money. The scheme pays for itself. Kids are looking after each other. They're learning to...
2: Anyone could fix a roof, so easy. Yeah. The other day, just saw a bit of roof falling mm. off. Thought I'd go up there, and fix it.
1: Yeah, put put me in a blue tie, <laughs> and <laughs> I'll be in the cabinet in a week. I reckon. So, uh, Roz, one thing that I find strange about this, always, well, it's always, why don't we get the young people doing something? But it feels like it wasn't too long ago that over fifties were being told to literally get on their bikes and deliver food. Why should a scheme like this just be sectioned off to? to one demographic? Why is this not something opened up where, you know, we could use this as a way to bring people back into the workforce who've maybe become de-skilled after a bit of time out or whatever it might be. But there's there's all sorts of reasons why this scheme, if you put it forward in a positive way, could appeal to you no matter what what your age might be.
2: Yeah, the over 50s idea that Will Stride was touting so proudly is, is of course to get them to uh, back in the workforce and uh, out of early retirement and uh, earning money and paying taxes. So that was a slightly a slightly different proposition but I entirely agree that it would be great to extend volunteering schemes because people do actually love volunteering schemes. The number of people during COVID who signed up for the uh, volunteer force and did things like volunteering at vaccination centres and food parcels and all that sort of thing. It's, it's something that that people will actually do when they're asked yeah. and given a structure and people and given options, and it's clear and signposted to things that useful things that they can do. But we should also bear in mind that older people often don't have the options and the freedoms that younger people do. I mean, they may not be able to move around the country. They may have caring commitments that they already have. You know, many elder people, late middle-aged, early elderly, are caring for their spouses or their own parents or or still their kids. And that takes up time on top of their day job. Or perhaps they're on an NHS waiting list and therefore not in a condition really to to volunteer.
1: You know, you you spend a lot of time researching World War nostalgia, and this to me, a lot of it kind of feels a bit along that. But do people misremember what national service was was actually like for the people who did it?
2: I mean, there's there's an element of that going on. There's, there's sort of the idea of yeah, that's very prevalent around ideas about the Blitz and the Second World War. There was a social solidarity. That uh, There was a breaking down of class barriers, all that stuff about the Queen Mother looking out from a bombed bit of Buckingham Palace and saying, oh, no, I could look the East End in the face. Mm. Um, you know, all that kind of thing. The idea that different social classes were mixing in a way in national service that didn't happen otherwise mm. and that that was good for society. And I think it's almost um, uh, a nostalgia for a less unequal society in Britain. I think it comes down to that, the idea that, but of course the problem with that is that if you're actually going to do that and if you're, it really does have to be compulsory because if it's going to be a shared experience you can't have people opting out so this is a problem which the authors of the report acknowledge you know if you're if you're going to have a generational shared experience you really have to make sure as many people as possible do it um, or it's not a generational shared experience
1: it seems to me also it it means that any scheme like this has to have a, a longer a longer tail to it as well because particularly as younger people to me seem to be being younger for longer because they're not getting that Kind of access to to capital or buying houses, and they've been sort of infantilized for a, for a lo- much longer period of time. So yeah, this might help you out for for two years, but then for a lot of people going to university, does that say already going to education? There are scenarios in which people get thrown into where class boundaries, to an extent, can. you know I'm sure elite universities, perhaps mm-hmm. not. I didn't go to an elite university, so I wouldn't know. But you know that felt like it broke that down a little bit, but. There's a short-termism to this, isn't there as well? Just a scheme would have to be then backed up with a kind of encouraging people to have a further commitment. Maybe, say, perhaps you do the scheme and then you become a, a senior person overlooking the scheme or something like that. Maybe
2: I mean maybe not. Maybe I, I'm, I'm not sure that you necessarily need to do that. Six months is about the right time. Gives yeah. you a chance to kind of get into a whatever you're doing and actually feel that you're on top of the job that you're doing, and you might begin to understand
3: it and perhaps enjoy it and make friends and so on. But I think that I think there is an interesting point there, which is the the point of this paper was that young people are feeling unhappy and they're unskilled and they're unmoored. So you give them this this opportunity for national service, but then what happens after it? I mean, do those skills then count towards their CV? Do mm-hmm. employers hire on the back of those? Do they then have a stake in their society? Will they still feel happy you year, five years on, you know, there are still fundamental issues that are affecting young people. And this scheme wouldn't fix those things. People are still going to struggle to buy houses. People are still going to struggle to get a job out of university. People are still going to struggle with a number of things that are facing young people. So I'm not sure how a national service or a volunteering or an extension of a volunteering scheme would actually fix any of those problems in the long term. It seems, as you were saying, quite short termist.
1: What would your dream plan for the youth look like, though?
3: Um, more housing. <laughs> um, I mean, I think young people just need much more support and I think they need more civic engagement at school. So I would like to see um, lessons on citizenship and politics much younger. I would like pe- young people to feel like they have more of a stake in Government and community, things like Youth Parliament is a really interesting initiative and I wish it could be rolled out on a on a larger scale. I mean, I'd never heard of it when I was at school. If I had, I'd probably have... Desperately wanted to do that. It's exactly the sort of thing that precocious 13 year old me would have been dying to do. Um, But yeah, I mean, more generally, we need much better mental health care in schools. I think one of the things Labour's proposing is to have mental health champions in schools. Kids are really struggling with feelings of loneliness, uh, mental health disorders, eating disorders. All that have worsened and been exacerbated since COVID, since social media has been much more prevalent. So I think all those things need much more investment. Um, and of course, the, the longer term problems like housing that I've alluded to.
1: Uh, Ros? What about you?
3: Well, I would like a
2: national expensive scheme. I'm not sure. You know, I think if it's it is a billion, it's actually not that much in the big scheme of things. A billion, and while I agree it's not, not a priority at the moment in the state the country is in, I think it would be a nice to have. I think it would be really good to have you know a few weeks residential, two or three weeks, and then the chance to either help out in your community if you wanted to, if you wanted to stay there, or the chance just to go somewhere else. Getting, as I say, people away from what they know and into something new can be really powerful you know it sounds very kind of motherhood and apple pie but you know my kids are both in scouts in various levels and the scouts has been amazing for them it's just been especially over the last few years what they've been through the ability what they do there and the things they learn and the ability how much they enjoy it and the fact you can go away for a week and not be able to use your mobile phone is actually really good yeah. I know that sounds terribly parent-y and you know, but it actually gets them out of you know that that frame mm. and that that mental space and into what is happening around them, and I would love to see a bit more of that going on.
1: I think at any age, just being able to have a week of not using your mobile phone <laughs> is very good. But please, everyone, keep using your mobile phone to listen to this podcast, as <laughs> as, I, as I hope you are right now. <laughs> We've reached the end of the show, so it's time for escape routes. Roz, what's yours?
2: This is a little bit update because it's already happened, I suppose, but you can still watch it on BBC Catch-Up. The World Athletics Championships, and uh, they were held in Budapest, and yeah, it's, that's what it says on the tin, it's just a load of athletics. But I found myself strangely hypnotised by the athletics, by the sight of, you know, bloke after bloke, bloke after fit bloke, um, <laughs> grasping a pole and attempting to vault over a very high barrier. And there were some amazing athletes as well, and uh, and, and, and also equal space was given to the men and the women, which was also really... Quite quite nice to see. So, uh, while I'm not normally the kind of person who watches much sport on TV, uh, I got really into it.
1: Uh, Zoe, what's yours?
3: So, mine is not that cheery, but very much worth listening to. So, it's a podcast called The Retrievals.
1: Don't so, listen to other podcasts. It's right not. <laughs> I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's a um,
3: direct competitor, but it's by the people who made Serial. Um, if people know that, it's quite a famous podcast, and it's basically a true story. It's investigative journalism about um, a number of women who had uh, IVF treatment at a clinic at Yale University. And they had the treatment without pain medication because one of the nurses was stealing fentanyl and replacing it with saline solution. They had incredible pain and doctors were not listening to them. And eventually it all came to light. But the podcast is brilliant because it uncovers not only the very human case behind the woman, the nurse who was stealing fentanyl drug addiction in America, opiate addiction, um, and all the sort of ethical issues that throws up, but also why women's pain is never believed by doctors. Um, and it's just fantastic. I think it's four or five parts and it's very gripping. You listen to a, a load of testimonies from the women and, you know, the university still hasn't really been held accountable for for how this um, nurse managed to steal these drugs. So it's just a fantastic bit of um, journalism, really. I'd very much recommend it.
1: Nice. Uh, mine is The the Sopranos, which is, I'm really, really, really late to it, but I always just thought there's loads of episodes of this and I just don't care and I'm not going to find the time to watch it. I've started watching it and, predictably, it's really, really, really good. It's very good.
2: Still yeah. never seen it. I was like that with Our Friends in the North, which I watched the first time yeah. last year.
1: Well, yeah, well that's, a, that's another one on my list. I've got The Wire is on the list, but maybe that too. But... I've never
3: seen any of these classics. I'm just a reality TV <laughs> Um, person, so I just yeah, I really should get into watching something. You've got classic. to do the diet of yeah. something
1: trashy, something classic. So get us yeah. on that. And that's the end of the Tuesday edition of Oh God, What Now? Thank you, Roz. Thank you, and thank you, Zoe. Thank you. Oh God, What Now? We'll be back on Friday or Thursday if you're a Patreon backer. Thanks for listening to Oh God, What Now. See you next time.
2: Oh God, What Now? is presented by Managing Editor Jacob Jarvis with Zoe
1: Grunewald and Roz Taylor. Audio production was from me, Robin Lieburn. Producer is Chris Jones. Our group editor is Andrew Harrison. Art is by Jim Parrott. Social media by Jess Harpin. And Oh God, What Now? is a Podmasters production.